The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, I echo the words of that song, asking you to speak, thankful that you are eager to. You're eager to teach us. You're eager to raise up a people mature and maturing. So take your word here this morning and teach it to us. And I pray, Lord, will you do a work here by your Spirit's power in this room to make complicated things clear, to keep us from distraction and confusion and from getting getting waylaid by a hundred different ideas. Will you make the truth clear? Will you press it into us and, and... Take it to a level that is beyond, beyond head knowledge Will you make us different with what is true. Particularly will you raise up a church that holds to you in faithful obedience. Build us up in that direction this morning with this passage before us. Teach, Lord. Build your church and honor your name. Thank you. Amen. You're so legalistic. Ever heard that before? Maybe said that about somebody? An accusation kind of thrown around the church some by people usually in the church. You kind of got to know the lingo to, to use that kind of an accusation. It's directed at people who in some way or another seem to be demanding some particular religious behavior. Seem to be holding up and requiring people to to hold to some standard, some divine command. And while I'm sure that sometimes that accusation is warranted, it's a sign of our times that it's thrown around a lot, and it's a very stinging accusation. Nobody wants to be a legalist. Nobody wants to lapse into legalism today. Interestingly, though, in former times, the stinging accusation leveled against the church was the exact opposite. You're so licentious. Licentious, a license to sin, if you think of it like that. No standard whatsoever, not holding anything, not requiring anything of anybody. In fact, that's the accusation that would have been thrown at and leveled against the church very early on. Jesus himself even was accused of that. You have no standards, Jesus. You have no requirements for people. You, you have no adherence to the law that God's given. You just give people permission to sin and say it's all covered by God's forgiveness. So wrong, Jesus. And so not what Jesus was actually saying. And that's what brings us to our passage this morning in Matthew chapter 5. A pivot point here in the Sermon on the Mount that we've been looking at for some number of weeks now. Up, up to verse 17, this we've been looking at what God has made his people, the, the church to be, what he's made Christians to be, and largely we've looked at that through what we call the Beatitudes, what we are, and then last week, why he made us that, for the sake of gospel witness. 
Well, this morning there's a pivot. He's pivoting now to what is the, the central heart of this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' main core of teaching. And he's going to introduce it this morning with some, some comments of clarification. This is kind of like laying some of the groundwork for what's going to come. Clarifying, Jesus is clarifying, his relationship and his teachings relationship to the Old Testament and especially to the Old Testament law of Moses. You can use the word law to describe all instruction, all teaching in the Bible, but Jesus this morning is particularly using it about the law of Moses. He's going to explain something about his relationship to that, and his relationship to it informs our relationship to it. So that's where we're going this morning. Now this section, verses 17 to 20, is extensively discussed in many, many contexts. Lots of books and articles and lecture series and it's everywhere. There's a lot that relates to this. And poking this paragraph then is a little bit like that mosquito who hits an artery. If, if you stay here too long, you're in danger of exploding from all the information that comes rushing at you and overwhelms you. So we've got to just be careful this morning and touch something. But I think that as we touch it and focus on what's actually here, we'll be able to manage. Because a lot of what gets really overwhelming, really confusing and debated is not actually here in this passage. So we're going to stick to this, verses 17 to 20. And though there is some complexity, prayerfully we'll be able to manage it. So verses 17 to 20, let me read it and then make two observations from it. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5. Two observations. Here's the first. It's long, so I'll repeat it several times. You can get it all down. All the Old Testament, including the law, so all the Old Testament, including the law, is fulfilled in Christ and remains authoritative still today. All the Old Testament, law included, is fulfilled in Christ and remains authoritative still today. Verse 17 begins with Jesus saying, don't think this, because perhaps some people were thinking it, but probably because Jesus knows that as he continues to teach, as life goes on, he's going to teach, and he's going to do things, and people are going to hear him talk about things like dietary laws, talk about things like Sabbath regulations. They're going to watch him sit down and eat with sinners and touch lepers, and people are going to begin to see that and hear that and draw some conclusions and begin to think some things. He says, don't go there. Do not think that because I have not come, it is not my purpose 
to abolish the law or the prophets. That phrase, law and the prophets, here with an or because of the negative sense of the sentence, law and prophets is the, is the completely common way that those people then describe what we today call the Old Testament. Law and the prophets. You can see this everywhere. Jesus himself uses it again in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 11, an important passage for us this morning, in 11 verse 13, Jesus says, the law and the prophets prophesied up till John the Baptist. The law and the prophets, not just the prophets, it all prophesied until John the Baptist. So he's talking about all of the Old Testament, and Jesus is here saying, I am not here to abolish the Old Testament, to draw a gigantic line through it, a big X, and cross it all out and start something new and different. Not why I'm here. I'm not here to annul it. Rather, I have come to fulfill it all. It's all prophesying, beginning to end, and I've come to fulfill it. Which, if you think back to what we've seen already in the, in the book of Matthew, and I, and I know it has been a minute since we've been in the beginning of the book of Matthew, but Matthew's been hitting that point over and over and over again. If you think back to chapter 1, the first, the first bit of chapter 1 was connecting us back to David and the Davidic covenant, and Jesus is the son of David. And then right after that in chapter 1, you get verse 22, beginning of the drumbeat of the explicit statements, this was to fulfill. In verse 22, it was to fulfill Isaiah. Chapter 2, verse 6, to fulfill Micah. And again in verse 15 and 17 and 23, and chapter 3, verse 15, and the entire story at the beginning of chapter 4, that's from Exodus, and chapter 4, verse, uh, verse 14, over and over and over again, Matthew is trying to show us very clearly at this point, all of the Old Testament, beginning to end, was pointing forward to Jesus. All of it. In one way or another. And furthermore, if you remember from back then, it's not all pointing forward in the same way. Sometimes we talked about this, this direct line prediction. It's not all like direct line prediction, like the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. That's, that's true, but it's not all like that. Sometimes it's more what we called typological, a model. Some event, some teaching, something happens that really happens and it really meant something back then, but it also kind of raised some questions as it wasn't completed and it wasn't quite all fleshed out. It wasn't filled in. And it left a spot for Jesus to say, I complete that. It's all ultimately about me. An easy one that we all know is the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb actually happened. The book of Exodus happened in, in Egypt. They slayed this, this Passover lamb. They spread the butt on, on the doorpost. God's wrath passed over those people. They were let out of their bondage in Egypt. That actually happened, but it raises a question. It kind of creates a space for Jesus to come along as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The Passover Lamb. It's typologically pointing towards him. So whether it's a direct line, whether it's typological, in one way or another, all the Old Testament is like that. And Jesus here then, pause, is making an 
astonishing claim. Can you imagine how this hit people? The Bible is all about me. That's astonishing. That would have made people kind of tilt their heads a little bit. What? It's all about me. It's all, in one way or another, pointing forward to the promised coming Messiah, to the kingdom that I will set up, to how I will cleanse my people from their sin, how I will give them a right standing before God, how I will fill them with the Spirit of God, how I will move them to follow the decrees of God, how I will deliver them into the peace of God. It's all about me. I'm it. And so, of course... I'm not here to annul any of that, to wipe it out. I'm here to fulfill it. No way whatsoever he's wiping that out. He's fulfilling it. And as he speaks to his disciples, of course, he's just only begun to fulfill it. It won't be completed until the second coming when he returns and judges all evil and wipes the world clean and sets up, finally, the kingdom of Shalom. That hasn't happened yet, and as long as any of us are reading this, it still hasn't happened yet. And so, verse 18, until that all happens, till then, not even one little bit of God's law will pass away. That's what the words iota and dot there mean. Maybe you're familiar with older translations that said jot and tittle. Different ways of rendering the, the original words all that he's referring to are little strokes of a pen that were parts of Hebrew letters. So not even the little parts of the letters, let alone the letters, let alone the words, let alone the sentences, let alone the verses, let alone the commands, none of that's going anywhere. It all stands. All of it. The entirety of the law and notice now he's dropped the word prophet and he's focused specifically on the commandments of the law of Moses. None of that passes away. None. And that much is clear. And this is the point where the mosquito just punctured the artery. Because from this point right here, Lots of stuff could come rushing at us. Lots of people from this point right here get off on lots of discussions and thinking about well, how and when and why and where and what do we do with this and what about that and come back. Focusing on this, we're going we're to keep focused on this, but you can easily see where all the confusion comes from because... Jesus just said, not one bit of it passes away, but we all know that the law of Moses, for instance, says God's people should not eat pigs. So, is bacon wrong for us? <laughs> Inquiring minds want to know, right? Is bacon wrong? And the answer is not here in this passage. It's not. So we're going we're to keep here. 
It comes later, and if you must know, because understandably we're talking about bacon, the answer comes from Jesus in Matthew 15, verses 10 to 20, teaching also recorded in Mark 8, and the short answer is bacon is fine. Good news. But, here in our passage, the reason that's, he explains there why, but the reason is not because Jesus came and drew a gigantic X over that don't eat pigs verse. He said, that's ridiculous. Pigs are awesome. That's not what he said. That's not why. And it's not that Jesus came along, did this, checked the temperature of the room and the way the wind's blowing and said, you know what, I've discovered that popular opinion is that that bacon is awesome. So I just got a revelation from God. New rules. Bacon's fine, everybody. That's not what happened. People think that's how Christianity works because that's how every other man-made religion works. Many that you're very familiar with That's how every other man-made religion works because men give rules and enforce them but gradually over time check and discover the shift, the changing winds and then get a revelation. That's not what's going on in the Bible. Things don't change in the Bible because societies evolve or because Jesus has different ideas and is more loving or something. He fulfilled all the law, not annulled it, not changed it, not struck it out and gave us something different. It all stands still. It is just as authoritative, just as worthy of being read, listen to this closely, as being read, understood in Jesus, taught, and followed. Read, understood in Jesus, taught, and followed. Brief aside for those of us who are theology geeks. What that means is we cannot read the Old Testament and interpret it correctly only using its history and its grammar. We must also use the rest of the canon, the New Testament, Jesus, his kingdom, the gospel of grace, the cross. We have to interpret everything through Christ who fulfilled it, which means the grammar and the history and the canon. That's how we properly interpret the Bible. We understand it through Jesus, teach it, and follow it just as much as ever. It's just as authoritative. It is just as much God's word. We could preach a series on Leviticus, Exodus. Surely, though, somebody's still here thinking, just as authoritative, you you teach it and we follow it, but you just said we can eat bacon, which is not following it. How, How does that work? Give me something. Okay, here's how that works. This is not answering all the questions and all the details. It's helping us think about the paradigm. You have to think about this. Everything that is predictive, everything that's pointing ahead, when fulfilled by nature, it has to change in some way. Think, for instance, 
of a marriage engagement. A man and a woman agree to get married one day in the future. They become fiancés, they circle day on a calendar, send out invitations, and every day between that moment and the day, they do something that is preparatory, something that is, in a way, predicting the coming. They search for a caterer, they, they hire a wedding photographer, they buy a dress, read some materials, rehearse the ceremony, and then the day comes, and then the next day comes, and you're no longer searching for a photographer. You have a photo album that you use to remember the day that happened. You look back, you're not buying a dress anymore. It's cleaned and in a box in the closet. Maybe you're going to keep it to remember. Maybe you're going to keep it and pass it on to your daughter, but the search for is over. It's here. And the, the date on the calendar, the, the first anniversary that you celebrate by using the cake that the caterer provided and you froze, you eat it and you remember. And if you don't, if you don't remember, then watch out. But that date is different than the same day a year before. It must change. Not because you canceled the wedding. Not because you canceled the caterer that you booked but because it actually happened. The thing pointed to came about. And all those preparations, they are still in your life in different ways. You've got an album now. They're all still in your life differently, in different ways as is appropriate for what they are. But something changed. In a similar way, that's how the old changes when it comes into the new. All the bits are still here, but they're in different ways. They're still binding, they're still authoritative. How exactly? I want to know. We'll have to let the king teach us. He'll teach us when we get to later in Matthew. He'll begin to teach us next week when he picks up the Ten Commandments and says, you've heard it said, I tell you. He goes to the law next, right? He's going to begin to explain how this works next week. But right here, all he says, the point so far, Jesus, and therefore the Christian faith, and therefore each Christian disciple, Jesus is by no means licentious. Or another word, he is no antinomian anti-namas, law. He is no anti-law person. He believes all the commandments of the law, and for that matter, today we could also include all the commandments of the New Testament too. All the commands of God, they all stand, they are all authoritative and binding on all of God's people. We are under orders. The details, of course, he's going to have to flesh those out for us, and it comes over time. But don't for one minute think that Jesus or the New Testament or the massively important grace of God in some way makes a faith that is more lenient or more permissive or more understanding or more tolerant or more enlightened or more with it. He fulfills the law, not abolishes it. 
He embraces it, loves it, teaches it with power, and actually in a more powerful, more piercing way, as we'll see. It doesn't get easier when Jesus comes, it gets harder. And that has ramifications for us, as we'll see in just a minute. But consider right now just one thing about this. I think, as, you, as we move through what I've said so far, I think that some of it feels a little bit like review, probably, and then some of it feels a little bit like, what? But what I get sounds, hmm. Do you realize how good this is? Don't let the dominant feeling become, hmm, law, binding, authoritative, under orders, commands. Those are, hmm, sort of words. They're Bible words and feel they're good. The king and his kingdom is and will be far better than any human king and any human kingdom ever was, is, or will be. This king and this king's kingdom, ours, our home, is and will be righteous and just and therefore good. Not mostly so, Completely so. That's his standard. Still. We're not dealing with the Jesus who's your buddy. Thank God. We're dealing with Jesus who is righteous and just. That's the foundation of his throne. And everything that comes out of him is that that's what he's aiming at. That's what he's going to produce. That's where he's going. That's where he's taking us to holiness, which is beautiful. Sin is ugly. Sin looks pretty. Sin tastes attractive. Sin destroys. And to have a king in a kingdom that says, no, is good. So good. Holiness is what is beautiful. Holiness is what we were made for. And holiness is what the king demands and will produce. That's what Jesus is about for the glory of God and for the good of the kingdom and for your good. So don't hear command and law and all those words and say, mm, say thank you. Thank goodness. Thank goodness that the kingdom, that our eternity is not going to be like, Decent. Righteous and holy and just and pure. That's the king, that's the kingdom. And that's what he requires of us too. Which leads us to the second observation. Us now. A lot of it's been implied already, but... We must uphold the commands of God's law. But not like the Pharisees do. We must uphold the commands of God's law, but not like the Pharisees do. 
Verse 19, therefore, Jesus tells what this means for us Christians, and notice he's talking to disciples here, that's his audience, and he's talking about people who might be called least in the kingdom of heaven, or might be called greatest in the kingdom of heaven, but they're both in the kingdom of heaven. So he's talking to disciples about disciples, what we would say Christians, but one possibility, one person is a worthy ambassador of and representative of and teacher of the kingdom and its values, and one is not. One is and one is not. And what's the delineation? The unworthy disciple called least is the one who looses, who relaxes the commandments of God's law, himself, herself, and who teaches others to do so too. That's not exactly saying one who is disobedient. A little bit different. I mean, probably implied, but a little bit different. It's one who says, who relaxes, who looses, one who says, you know, those commandments, that law, that's for them, not us. We are under Christ. We're in the new covenant. We're under grace. Jesus is is the God of grace. Jesus is, is about love, not law. We sure don't want to be legalists. Why are you so legalistic? Why are you so worried about all the commandments? Why are you so focused on obeying and and under orders and and disobedience and sin? Why are you so rigid? Be more positive and encouraging and uplifting. Talk more about love and grace and doing what feels right to you and what feels like you're most satisfied and fulfilled. God loves me and would understand me and would want me to to be happy. And so we should, you know, yeah, he's important, but Jesus is saying, no, no. And oh, do not relax even one of the least of these commandments. Don't teach others to either. That's not what I'm about, and therefore that's not what you are about, he says. If you want to be pleasing to God in my kingdom, fully embrace all of the Old Testament, including the law of Moses. I'll tell you how over time. It does change since I fulfilled it. There's there's a difference, but it doesn't go away. We love God's law as it comes to us through Christ. On this law, we meditate day and night. It is a lamp to us and a light to our feet. So we have to be, and we have to build a church that is. We have to be diligent about understanding God's requirements, rightly in and through Christ, for sure. But we have to be about God's word, asking ourselves often, if not explicitly, just having this kind of this bent in your mind, asking ourselves the rhetorical question posed by an old saint. I remember this. I don't know who said it, but I remember it. I think of it all the time. Is the Lord to be obeyed in whatsoever he commands? That's a rhetorical question. Is the Lord to be obeyed in whatsoever he commands? Yeah. Yes. This word, these instructions, it is good, it is life, it is given to be obeyed and upheld, and we must do them and teach them if we want to be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus says in verse 19. Exactly, those are his exact words. 
So, pause for a second. And Christian, just ask yourself, do you tend to relax any of the commands? Jesus speaking where he is is referring only to the Old Testament, but his commands in the New Testament are commands all the same. Do you relax any of the commands? And if for a second, just for the sake of discussion, if, if you're kind of like hung up on a, I don't really know what that command means, I don't really know what to do with all the, those, okay, don't think about those things. Think about the things you get. Do you tend towards cutting yourself some slack? Because, you know, nobody's perfect. It's just my personality. God doesn't mind. That's what grace is for. Everyone, I mean, look around. Everyone else thinks this way. Everyone else does this. Do you cut yourself some slack? Do you encourage others to come along with you? Just pause and ask that, and if there is something important, prayerfully, God will, God will prod you and poke you. We are to live out and to uphold all of God's commands. That's the obvious implication of the first point. Jesus is about that. So are we. We must uphold all of God's commands. But you know, verse 20 is here too, right? And it would be possible, if, if you were a Pharisee or a scribe, listening to Jesus say all this, like, it would be possible that up to this point you'd be saying like, well, okay. Maybe he's not nuts. I don't know about the whole Bible being about him thing, but finally he has come down clearly. He is saying we are supposed to do what God says. Okay. And then it all turns. Because verse 20 actually yanks the rug out from underneath of those folks. Not like them. In fact, we need to uphold all of God's commandments in a way that is far superior to all that they do. For, verse 20, their way won't even get you into the kingdom, let alone make you great in it. See the difference there? In verse 19, he's talking about being great in the kingdom, and in verse 20, he talks about getting into the kingdom. Their way won't even get you into the kingdom, let alone make you great in it. Their way is legalism. We throw that word around a lot, but legalism exactly is what they are about, the extremely careful, extremely disciplined practice of doing the literal rules of God, believing that that is what makes me right with God. Works righteousness. Legalism. That's what they believed. And it's insufficient. Jesus is not telling us verse 20. He does not teach verse 20 to tell us to work at being better Pharisees than the Pharisees. 
That is not possible. There is no one better at that game than they were. He's writing it to say, he speaks it to say, that that's the wrong game. It doesn't work. Verse 19, we must uphold the commandments, but in a kingdom way, a superior way, not like the Pharisees, for their way doesn't work and you need something better, a better righteousness than what they get with their very careful, diligent obedience to what God said. Okay, so am I talking to the other side of my mouth now? Be careful and obey, but... They're careful and they obey, but not, not like them. That doesn't work. What, what are we saying here? In a real way, this all comes right back to the Beatitudes. And it urges us to lean into them and, and grow in them and the way of grace and promise that they hold out for us. So hear this and... I recognize that there's a lot of complexity here, but hear this, and if there, something earlier confused you, hear this. We have to uphold God's law, but in a way far superior to the Pharisees' very diligent attempt to do what God said. Instead, what God has produced in us, what you must grasp and do if you're a Christian, is that I can't do what God said. Because God said more than you must have clean hands. God said you must have a pure heart if you want to ascend the hill of the Lord. Remember we talked about that? And I don't have a pure heart. This is the problem with all works righteousness, with every Pharisee and scribe, and with many, 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 many people that you know, maybe with you. Is that you think... People think that what God requires is very careful diligence to have clean hands, and so I will. And what he says is, and a pure heart. Ugh! If you're half awake, you just got slaughtered. Pure heart. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbors yourself. I don't do that. And so mourning over sin, you're broken and led to say, oh God, I hunger and thirst for a righteousness that I cannot produce because I can't even make my hands clean. If I tried really, really, really hard, maybe I could, but my heart is the problem. Help! And what does a person like that find? The grace of God shouting, you shall be satisfied. This is the heart of the Beatitudes. Remember this, brothers and sisters, remember this? You shall be satisfied. If you are the person who mourns over your sin and realizes my heart is the problem and I can't fix it and I need a righteousness that I cannot make, God help. God says in grace, yes. Yes. You shall be satisfied. I'll give you a righteousness by putting on to you the righteousness of Christ and putting on to him your sin, the only one who ever in himself fulfilled all of the law, every jot and tittle, every single bit of it. Christ was the only one righteous in heart and in hands who fulfilled everything, including the laws about the sacrifices for sin. And he himself was the sacrifice for all the sin laid on him, not his own, he was righteous, ours. 
And God says in grace, I'll put your sin on him and I'll give you his righteousness, which is complete, heart and hands. You stand before me by grace in Christ, counted righteous. That is far, far superior to anything the Pharisees could conjure up. Bless God. And that's not all. Because, as the Beatitudes make clear, I then have to live out. As Jesus is making clear, I have to live out the commands of God. Merciful, making peace, pure-hearted, and clean hand. I need something more, and God in grace gives that too. To become not just obedient and not just in standing righteous, but to become obedient and in position righteous. Far more than the Pharisees could ever get. God gives me, God gives you, Christian, grace to work in your heart. He gives you by grace the Spirit of God to live in you. He, by grace, opens your eyes to see God's gracious past work for you and God's gracious future promises for you. Gives you faith to believe that that's who he is, that's his character, and what he promises you is enough. And what he will do for you tomorrow and into eternity, it's enough. His protection for you now, it's enough. He gives you grace to be that and grace to see that and grace to believe that and grace that breaks you free from the bondage of sin that keeps you from obeying him and grace to empower you to walk in his ways. It is grace all the way through that enables you to actually be more righteous in this life than the Pharisees were to uphold the law rightly in hands and in heart. That's the grace of God. It is not by works, not from the beginning, not to the end, and nowhere in the middle is righteousness by works. The Pharisees were wrong, and so is every man-made religion. This is the grace of God that makes us in standing righteous and then moves us to follow his decrees, as Ezekiel puts it. Christian, this is beautiful. This is far superior to anything the Pharisees offered, far superior to any other religion in the world. This is the religion of God. This is the Christian faith. Righteousness and justice, holiness, what a treasure this is. Lean into it. Hold up in front of yourself all the commandments of God. Don't deal with it by dodging it. Deal with it by embracing it and saying, God, help me by grace to see and by grace to walk. To trust you and to obey. There is no other way to be happy in Jesus and to be great in the kingdom of God. To trust and obey. The obedience of faith. It's the Christian life. Brothers and sisters, I, I suspect, I feel that some of this feels confusing and some of this feels heavy. But will you, will you, may God, can you help us to Open your eyes to see the beauty of the God of grace who is holy, holy, holy.
who is not licentious nor legalistic, who does not allow us or call us to either, either, but calls us to walk with him obediently, trusting him to give us grace that moves us to actually act obediently. That's a good thing given to us by God. Let me pray. Father, would you help us to see, to marvel at, to rejoice in your gracious, your gracious work in us and on us. But keep us, Lord, from sliding into a grace that is permissive rather than a grace that is sanctifying. Keep us from that, please. Make us a people who are holy and righteous, not only in standing, bless God, but who are righteous in walking. Do that for us, your people here. Build us up to be a people and to be a church that loves your law, meditates on it day and night, finds it to be a lamp and a light for us. Thank you, Lord. We trust ourselves to you. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.